0: Most controversial doctrines in the whole Bible, you probably know. Not only is it one of the most controversial, if not the most controversial, it is uh, one of the most emotionally charged doctrines. I look at Russ Kruder sitting right here in the front row. Russ is one of my best friends, mainly because he's wearing a Cubs hat. But uh, uh, when I was first introduced to the doctrine of election in 2001 in college, um, to say that I hated it would be an understatement. Um, for, for a number of reasons. One, I, I'd never had heard of it before. And um, so it just kind of rubbed me wrong that I was like, I've been a Christian for all these years and nobody ever told me this. this I, I was automatically resistant to it. But secondly, it just didn't seem fair. This didn't seem like the God I knew that would choose to save some and, and frankly not choose to save others. And so when I first began to hear about this, I became an adamant opponent of the doctrine. In fact, Russ and I had many shouting matches, mainly me shouting at him, because he believed in the doctrine of election, and I didn't. And uh, I remember in college, I would preach in different churches, and I would literally get in the pulpit uh, of churches and, and, and call out other preachers by name who believed in this doctrine. I said, they're false teachers. I was that convinced that what I'm going to teach tonight wasn't true at that point. <laughs> it, was, it was heresy to me, Okay. Um, So I'm a big country music guy. I'll probably make multiple country music references. And my main guy, though, was, of course, Johnny Cash. And uh, Cash, if you remember, sang this song called uh, When the Man Comes Around. And uh, what you may not know about Johnny Cash is he was actually deeply theological. And a lot of his songs had tons of theology. When the man comes around, he's referring to Jesus. And he says there's a man going around taking names. And he decides who to free and who to blame. Everybody won't be treated quite the same. And so Cassius' theology in that song is consistent with what the Bible says in the doctrine of election, that everybody's not treated the same. What's challenging about this doctrine is we live in a culture where we, we believe from day one that everybody ought to receive equal treatment. This is why in Little League, for example, everybody gets a trophy, right? Even like the worst kid on the team, because it's, it's, it's this cultural thing. And so this is what can make the doctrine of election so challenging, especially if you've not heard it before, because it it doesn't seem fair at first. So let's just jump into it. Um, I want to begin with a a simple definition, just to make sure we're all on the same page, and then we're going to dive into it. Let's let's all have a framework here. Uh, This is from Wayne Grudem and his Systematic Theology. He says, Election is an act of God before creation... Okay, so it happened in the beginning of the world, predestination, pre before. Okay. Election is an act of God before creation in which He chooses some people to be saved, not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of His sovereign good pleasure. So, what I want to do is initially, I was going to just take you through like literally a thousand verses because there's probably that many verses that that I think teach this doctrine from beginning to end. I was going to do that, but I just really this week kind of felt led just to really camp out in like one passage and and tease this doctrine out from there. So I'm not going to say everything there is to say about this doctrine tonight. I could give you a million verses, but instead we're just going to camp out in one really deep text, what may be the deepest text in the whole Bible, maybe the most controversial debated passage of Scripture in the whole Bible. And so we're going to start in Romans 8, and I'm just going to take about four or five minutes in Romans 8 in verse 29 and 30. So you're going to turn there. If you don't have your Bible, um, I think we're going to go up here as well. You, get, you can track along. I'm in the ESV, so um, that might be confusing. If you have a different version, the ESV will be up here as well. So I'm going to spend three or four minutes in Romans 8, 29, and 30 for a basic introduction to predestination or election. But then we're going to spend almost all the time in Romans 9 where the Apostle Paul defends the doctrine of unconditional election. Okay, so that's that's kind of our plan. Let's begin in Romans eight twenty nine. So I'm assuming you know Romans eight twenty eight, probably the most popular Bible verse in the world outside of John three sixteen. All things work together for good to those who love God and are called into His purpose. That, so that's the context. And then in verse twenty nine, here's what the Apostle says. He says those whom he, of course he here is God, those whom he foreknew. So if you have a highlighter or a pen, you're going to want to underline that word. That The way you define the word foreknew here sets such a directory for everything else about the doctrine of election. If you get the word foreknew wrong, you got a whole different theology here, okay? So we're going to talk about that in a second. Those whom God foreknew, he also predestined. That, that's, the, that's the word, or he elected. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. So the goal of predestination is to be like Jesus, ultimately, and we'll get to that tomorrow, in order that he, that's Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. But let's just stop right there and and look at that word foreknew. Those whom God foreknew, he also predestined. Sometimes the best way to know what a text says is by understanding what it doesn't say. What the text does not say is that God foreknew or saw ahead of time those who would choose him. Now, now the reason I point that out is probably the most common objection to everything I'm going to say over the next 45 minutes is, well, yeah, God chose some people to be saved because God saw ahead of time who would have chosen Him anyway, and then He chose those people. But that's not what this text says. The text does not say God foreknew or foresaw those who would choose Him. Instead, the text says, Those whom he foreknew, or he foreknew them. When you see the word "new" or foreknew in the Old Testament in particular, but also the majority of times in the New Testament, it's a foreknowledge of persons, not of facts about what a person would or would not do. So when the text says those whom he foreknew, it doesn't mean God knew something about what they would do or who they would choose. It means God knew them. It's, it's, it's actually the same word from the Old Testament where, like, uh, where Adam and Eve knew each other in an in a, in a intimate kind of way. The, the, the point here isn't eroticism, of course. It's an it's a intimate knowledge of a person. It's a love word. The, the word, those whom he foreknew, you could rightly say those whom he foreloved. It's so important that you get that right. This text says, before the world began, God had a group of people he loved Deeply. He foreknew them. He foreloved them. And those are the people, verse 29 says, he also predestined. So, who are the people that God is going to choose to predestine or elect? Those whom he foreloved. And as we're going to see when we get to Romans 9.13, that, that wasn't everybody. That's a big bomb. This doctrine is a really big pill to swallow. It's deep, and it's mysterious, and it's highly emotional. But if you'll stick with me, or really stick with the word tonight, let's just dig deep together and look at it, okay? Now go on to verse 30. So those whom God foreknew or loved, he also predestined. And now in verse 30, and Jared referenced this, this is what sometimes theologians call the golden chain of salvation. So really, everything we're going to talk about tonight through tomorrow, the order of salvation is included in this one verse, really. It doesn't use the word adopted, for example, but it's it's implied, okay? So verse 30. Those whom he predestined, so there's that word, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. Now, now stop there for a moment. Now, the word justified, which we'll get into tomorrow, means we're legally declared to be righteous before God. So we receive Jesus' righteousness, we're completely forgiven, and we're not guilty in the courtroom of God. That's what justified means. But in Romans 3 through 5, earlier, Paul says the only way you're justified before God is through faith in Jesus. So we're justified by faith alone in Christ alone, not works, only faith. But what is the order of salvation that God gives us in verse 30? You have to believe in Jesus. You must have faith in Jesus or you will not be justified before God. But what happened before our faith and justification in the text? So if you wanted, you could write in the word faith right before justification in verse 30. Paul doesn't include it there, but he taught it all previously. So, the order, though, is this is what happened foreknowledge. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Faith came right before justification. But what happened before our faith? God had to do a lot of stuff. Before we did anything, God predestined, God called. Then we believe and are justified. See, so look, look at the order again. Predestination and calling come prior to justification in our faith. Those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. So again, I want to summarize that, and then we're gonna to go to Romans 9. Okay? This is just kind of one-on-one here. God says, before we believed and were justified, God predestined us and God called us. Meaning, this is the implication, if God would not have predestined us and called us, we would have never believed. The point is that in salvation, God always takes the initiative. Brothers, you must choose Christ. But you cannot choose Christ Unless Christ has chosen you first. This is why Jesus looked at his disciples in John 15, 16. He says, boys, I'm paraphrasing here. He says, you didn't choose me, I chose you. So God takes the divine initiative. The reason God had to choose and come to us first is because we could have never have come to him on our own otherwise because the Bible says we're spiritually dead in our sins. This is why Jesus said in John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So unless the Father moves first, you can't, come to, you can't just wake up one day dead in your sin and say, oh, I think I'll become a Christian today. It's, it's, that's impossible. God has to come first. God has to open our eyes. God has to regenerate us, as you'll hear from Joe later. Now, same context. Go to over to Romans chapter 9, okay? In, um, in Romans 9, 1 through 5, I'm not going to read it, but Paul basically tells us that most of Israel is lost, So it seems like God is not faithful to His promises because in the Old Testament, who were the chosen people of God? Israel, right? So if if now, though, Israel is basically going to hell, is is God not faithful to, to His people? So this is what Paul is going to be arguing here. And to defend the faithfulness of God, Paul gives us the doctrine of unconditional election. Paul's proof that God is indeed faithful to his people is election. And he's going to tease it out really over two chapters, two and a half. Okay? So let's pick it up in verse 6 for a little bit of context, but we're really going to dig in like verses 14 through 25. Okay, So here is Paul's defense of the faithfulness of God, verse 6. It is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who descended from Israel belonged to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac, he's quoting the Old Testament here, of course, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Verse 8, this means it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. So in, in summary, Paul here says that just because a person is a Jew and came from Abraham's bloodline and family tree does not mean they're a child of God. Because essentially, most Jews thought they were saved just by virtue of the fact that they were ethnic Jews. So God is saying here, though, I never promised to save every Israelite. God is going to say, I never said I chose every single Jew. So what we're going to see is there's always been what, what um, I think Tom Schreiner called a winnowing process in God's salvation. So Paul's main argument here is the word of God has not failed in verse 6 because God never said he was going to choose everybody. Therefore, when not all of Israel is saved, you can't blame God. Well, God, you you said you were going to save Israel. God's like, I never said I was going to save all of Israel. And now he's going to say is I, I didn't choose every single ethnic Jew. So you have ethnic Israel and you have a subset or what Paul calls later a remnant within Israel of what we'll call the true or the spiritual Israel, made up of those who believe in Jesus. Okay, So to prove his point that not all of Israel belongs to Israel, and to prove his point that God never intended to save every single Jewish person, Paul gives us two historical Old Testament examples where God chooses one and God does not choose the other. The first example he gives... In verses six through uh, twelve, or, or actually like six through nine, if you want to read it later, is God chooses Isaac not Ishmael? But then God says He chose Jacob not Esau. And I want to read Romans nine thirteen for you because this is one of this is a, a verse when you hear it for the first time, it's it's like a nuclear bomb got dropped in your brain. Romans 9.13 As it is written, and this is God speaking, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. That's a quotation from Malachi 1, 2, and 3, and now Paul says it again, quoting God. So, I, wanna, I just want to say this. I know it's, I hope, obvious. Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. I, I just need to say that John Piper didn't say that. John Calvin didn't say that. Martin Luther didn't inspire verse 13. Or John MacArthur. God said, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. So God chose and loved Jacob in a way that he did not choose and love Esau. And so we're all thinking, why? The the, the human instinct here is to think, oh, well, okay, so God must have saw something awesome about Jacob that inclined him to choose Jacob. instead of Like Esau must have just going to be a real knucklehead. Jacob was going to be an angel. So that's why God chose Jacob, right? Paul goes out of his way in the text, to say God's choice of Jacob and not Esau had nothing at all to do with Jacob being a good guy as opposed to Esau being a bad guy. The fact is, they were both terrible sinners, and Paul is shocked that God would have chosen either one of them. Now, let me, let me show you that. Go back two verses to verse 11. And so, before Paul drops the bomb that God does not love everybody the same. In verse 13, before Paul drops that bomb, he knows the shock that's going to land, so he he tells you in verse 11 why this is happening. Though they, verse 11, they as Jacob and Esau, they were going to be twins, right? Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of what? Election might continue. Not because of works. So not because Jacob and Esau had good or bad works, but because of him, that's God who calls. So Paul says God chose Jacob and not Esau, not because Jacob was going to do something good and Esau was going to do something bad or vice versa. God's choice of Jacob was not a reward to Jacob for good behavior or good decisions that he would make later in choosing God. Jacob met no conditions, no prerequisites, that would prompt God to choose him, Paul says. So in that sense, God's choice of Jacob was completely unconditional. This is why we call this doctrine unconditional election. Anybody who believes in the Bible at all has to say, I believe in the doctrine of election. It's, it's, you can't deny it if you believe in the Bible. The question is, do you believe in unconditional election? Meaning God chose people... For no good reason he saw in them in terms of their goodness. Or or God chose them purely by grace alone, even though they didn't deserve it at all. That's the distinction. So Jacob did not deserve to be chosen because Jacob, like all of us, was a sinner. And I love what Tom Schreiner... By the way, if you want to study this stuff really deep, the, the most comprehensive, deep, commentary ever written, in my opinion, on the book of Romans is Tom Schreiner's. And it's, it's like that thick and it weighs like 47 pounds. And it's really expensive, but it's this is what he says. Schreiner says, "...the stunning thing for Paul was not that God rejected Ishmael and Esau, but that he chose Isaac and Jacob, for they did not deserve to be included in his merciful and gracious purposes." Brothers, sometimes with our fallen natures and a lean towards entitlement, we are prone to criticize or question God for excluding anyone. We wrongly assume that God ought to bestow His grace on everybody equally. But brothers, nobody on planet earth deserves the mercy of God. Brothers, you understand, God did not have to save anybody. Because Romans 3 says, There is none that is righteous, no, not one, that all have become worthless, all have gone astray. Brothers, do you understand that God could have taken every single one of us in this room and dropped us into the pits of hell and every angel in heaven would have stood up and applauded God for ridding the earth of us. That is how sinful we are. So as we're dealing with the doctrine of election tonight, listen, the wrong question that everybody asks, but it's the wrong question. The wrong question is why wouldn't God choose everybody? Brothers, the the right question is because of how sinful we are. Why would God choose anybody? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God was under no obligation to show any mercy to any of us. If every one of us were in hell tonight, God would be perfectly just and fair. And no one under heaven could question His righteousness. But still, the Apostle Paul anticipates our objection to the doctrine of unconditional election. Paul knows this doctrine could be hard to hear, especially at first. And so what he's going to do now in verses 14 through 25 is he's going to defend the doctrine of unconditional election and tell us why God is righteous, why God is just in choosing some and not others. And so notice the question Paul gives us in verse 14. What should we say then? So he just said, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. So he knows we're freaking out when we hear this the first time. So he says, what should we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Is God not fair? Is is God cruel? And then he says at the end of verse 14, by no means. In other words, God was perfectly righteous to choose Jacob and not Esau. And now Paul's going to give us two reasons in verses 15 through 25. Why God is not unjust to choose some and not others. Here's the first reason. Paul says, that unconditional election is a righteous act of God because it displays God's freedom. It displays God's freedom as the sovereign God of the universe. Paul is deeply concerned that we understand that because God is God, He is perfectly entitled to do whatever He wants. Because God, by definition, is free. So let's let Paul make the case, okay? So verse 14, now let's throw in verse 15. Here we go. Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. Here's the first reason, verse 15. For he, that's God, said to Moses. And now Paul's taking us back to Exodus thirty-three, nineteen. God says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So when defending the justice of God and choosing some and not others, Paul goes back to the Old Testament, in Exodus 33. But I want us to actually go to Exodus 33, so go ahead and turn there because I want us to see the context. In Exodus 33, Moses is pleading with God to be merciful to Israel, even though they've rebelled against him time and again. Okay So in, in Exodus 33:18, and again, if you can't get there quick enough, I got the verses up here, okay? In Exodus thirty three eighteen, 18 Moses cries out to God, Lord, please show me Your glory. So Moses says, God, I just want to see who You really are, and Lord, I want to see what it is that makes You God. Show me Your glory, Lord. Show me who You are. Now, whatever God says next is preeminent. And what God wants Moses to know about who God is. This is God's chance to define Himself. Lord, show me Your glory. What does God want us to know about His glory and His name? That's deeply important. So, God's response in verse 19 God said, okay, Moses, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. So God says, okay, Moses, I'll show you who I am. I'll pass before you. I'll show you my goodness. I'll show you my glory. I'll show you what it is that, me, that makes me the Lord. So let's see what God says it is that makes God. God. Now read all of verse 19 together and the, the, the answer is in the second part of the verse. Okay, And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim before you, Moses, my name, the Lord. And now what God is about to say is what Paul quotes in Romans 9, 15 when defending the doctrine of unconditional election. So now it's, it's all coming together. This is what it is that makes God, God according to God. Verse 19b, God says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. God says, Moses, this is what it means for me to be God. It's my absolute freedom to show mercy to whom I want to show mercy, and to show compassion to whom I want to show compassion. God says, Moses central to the essence of what it means for me to be God is that I can do whatever I want. So this sovereign freedom is what displays and magnifies God's name, God says in Exodus 33. And Paul says in Romans 9.15, it's this freedom of God that allows God to righteously choose whoever He wants to choose. So Moses says, God, show me your glory. And and God says, Moses, this is my glory. This is who I am. I am constrained by no one's will. I am constrained by no person, by no power. Moses, this is my glory. This is my name, the Lord. I'm free. I show mercy to who I want to show mercy. I show compassion to who I want to show compassion. In the context, I elect who I want to elect. That's what makes me God. I'm free. I'll do what I want to do. I'm not constrained by human will, as we'll see in a few seconds in Romans 9. So in Romans 9.15, flip back there, Paul quotes this verse from Exodus to show, this is the next big point, that salvation is rooted first and foremost in God's will and God's freedom to save as God pleases, apart from the need to give an explanation or rationale to anybody. In verse 15 and 16 now, Paul is going to show us the supremacy of God's will over and against our will. You hear a lot of debate about the freedom of the will, or what's called free will. So often when you hear talk about the doctrine of election, people say, well, what about free will? So let's, let's, let's see what the Bible says about that, that tension. What Paul is about to argue in verse 15 and 16 is that the will of the Creator is greater than the will of the creation. Let's read verse 15 and 16 together and I want you to notice the contrast between God's will and our will. In fact, let's, let's, let's participate here together. Every time I, I say the word will... I want you guys to say it out loud with me. You're going to say it three times in two verses. Okay, So we say the word will. Say it. Here we go. This is God speaking. For he says to Moses, I will. have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will. have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now contrast this to verse 16. So then, it, it here is salvation. God's choice. It depends not on human will. or exertion. This means effort. But on God. It's implied God's will who has mercy. So do you see the contrast there? Because Paul knows we're thinking, what about free will? What about human will? He's like, well, let me tell you about that. Your salvation is not based upon your free will, it's based upon God's will. In verse 15, God says twice, My will, my will, I will. I will. In verse 16, he says, not your will. Not your effort. Mine. The point of verse 16 then is that God's mercy and salvation is not earned or accomplished primarily through our will, but God unconditionally chooses and saves whom he will so that, and this is where Paul's going to land here in a few minutes, so that none of the credit or glory can go to anyone but God. So, Brothers, what the doctrine of election does is it assures us that in heaven there will be no boasting. Because the only reason anybody will be there is because God chose to have mercy. So the first reason Paul gives that unconditional election is righteous and just is because it rightly displays the freedom of God, which by definition is what it means for God to be God. God said. So to say that another way, one of the most important things God wants you to know about Him is that He is entirely free. That's what it means to see His glory. That He is limited or constrained by no man or no earthly power. Secondly, though, unconditional election is righteous and just, Paul says, because it displays the power and the name of God in all the earth. I want to read you a verse from the Old Testament. You don't have to turn there because it's in Habakkuk and it'll take 20 minutes to find it. I can never find Habakkuk easily. So you can just read it up here. But Habakkuk 2.14 is a verse that shows us the end for which God created the world. That's Jonathan Edwards' language. But this is the climax of the universe. This is God's ultimate desire and ambition for all of the created order. And it's in Habakkuk 2.14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So the end for which God created the world is that the whole universe will be filled with a knowledge of the glory of God. So that is, God wants everybody to see Him, to know Him, to stand in all of Him, and to give Him glory for His greatness. That's the climax. Every knee will bow. All will behold Him, even those who pierced Him. Revelation says So now, though, Paul is going to argue that unconditional election is going to help bring about this final, ultimate, maximized glory of God in all the earth. And I'm going to warn you, when we get there, it's going to stretch us. Let's go back, though, and remind ourselves of the problem that Paul is addressing, or the contention, I should say. Verse 14 through 17, let's read those together. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. Why? First, because God says to Moses, I have mercy and I want to have mercy, and I have compassion and I want to have compassion. I'm God. I can do what I want. That's why it's just. Verse 16, so then it, salvation, depends not on human will or exertion, but on God. Salvation depends on God who has mercy. And now the, the, the new verse we haven't read yet, for the Scripture says to Pharaoh... And this is God speaking to Pharaoh in the book of Exodus. For this very purpose, Pharaoh, I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. What in the world does that have to do with the doctrine of election? Well, let's try to figure this out. God says in verse 17 that he raised up Pharaoh as a leader in Egypt. So Pharaoh had all the power. God put him in that position. But why did God raise up Pharaoh? Like, Why did God put Pharaoh as a leader over Egypt and, and, and not somebody else? It was not because Pharaoh had character. It was not because Pharaoh was some good guy. It was not because Pharaoh was going to be a good leader. He was going to be a very corrupt leader, as we'll see. God raised up Pharaoh in Egypt, this verse says, primarily for God's purposes. Back to verse 17. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, this is God speaking, for this very purpose I have raised you up. In other words, God says to Pharaoh, Pharaoh, I'm going to use you. This is why I raised you up. I put you on the throne. Here's why I put you on the throne. That I might show my power in you. And that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Pharaoh, you think you're awesome. You're on the throne. A, I put you on the throne. And B, I put you on the throne so that my name will be made great when I make you look stupid when I destroy you. As you'll know the story, Pharaoh and his armies are crushed by God. And the whole world stands in awe of this God of Israel who wiped out all these Egyptians. So God gave Pharaoh all of this power to show the world that as much power as Pharaoh had, God had more. God took the most powerful man he could, made him as powerful as he could, so that when he wiped him out, God would be seen as supremely powerful. And everybody would say, wow. So what's that got to do with God choosing some people to be saved and not other people? Well, Paul's going to tell us. Now read verse 17 and 18 together. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Verse 18, so then. So Paul here is making the connection between election and what God did with Pharaoh. That's why he says, so then, here's my point in other words, he, that's God, has mercy on whomever he wills. There's that word, God will again, but God hardens whomever he wills. Back to Johnny Cash theology, not everybody is treated the same. Paul says God shows mercy to some and he hardens others. And the example here is he hardened Pharaoh. That's what verse 18 says. God hardens Pharaoh's heart. In fact, six times in Exodus, you see God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Six times. God hardened Pharaoh's heart so that you remember all those plagues God kept sending? And you would think like when the, the water's bloody and there's gnats everywhere like Pharaoh would finally... But God kept hardening Pharaoh's heart so Pharaoh wouldn't let the people go so that God could have a bigger stage and a bigger audience to show his justice on Pharaoh. But this is very important because this is where a big misunderstanding of the doctrine of election tends to creep in right about now with this... Hardening talk. It's not as though Pharaoh is merely a puppet on a string. Because do you know what you also see six times in the book of Exodus? Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Did you know that? So six times the Bible says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Six times Pharaoh hardened his own heart. So who did the hardening? Did Pharaoh harden his own heart? Or did God harden Pharaoh's heart? And the answer is, yes. And you have to be comfortable with that tension. You're like, how can God do it and Pharaoh did it? Because the Bible said that's what happened. That's mysterious. But it's, it's so important that we understand. Pharaoh was not a deacon in, in the local Baptist church. Alright, this this was not a good guy that loved God, loved people, and God just came along and God poisoned his heart and God hardened his heart, and all of a sudden Pharaoh is this terrible person. God is not a twisted, sadistic, cosmic puppet master. That's not what the Bible says here. It's in Pharaoh's own sin and rebellion. Out of Pharaoh's own will, Pharaoh rebelled against God, and Pharaoh hardened his heart against God over and over and over again. Pharaoh's blood, brothers, was on his own hands. Pharaoh chose to rebel against God, but we see this in Exodus, you will see it in Jeremiah, and you see it in Romans 1. There comes a point in time when after a person has hardened their heart against God over and over and over again, finally God says, fine, I'm done. Have it your way. And God gives them over to what Paul calls in Romans 1, a reprobate mind. That's what's happening with Pharaoh. There comes a time when God has had enough, and God literally turns the people over to their own self-destruction. The patience of God, in other words, eventually will wear out. God is a God of 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 15th, 100th chances sometimes. But there will come a time when God will not give another chance. So in this sense, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And, and here's what Tim Keller says. Keller says, Pharaoh decided to resist God. God just reinforced him in that position. God gave Pharaoh what he chose. Now this is so, and that's why Exodus says, God hardened Pharaoh's heart and heart. They were hard in his own heart. Both were true. Now, this is why this is so important for us to see with the doctrine of election because there's this huge misconception, there's this huge false stereotype. The doctrine of election, it's not as though, brothers, there are people out there wanting to believe in Jesus wanting to repent of their sin, wanting to live holy lives for God's glory, and they're trying to come to God, they're crying out to God for mercy, and God's like, no, you're not elect, stay away from me. That cannot and will not ever happen. Brothers, there will be no scratch marks on the doors of heaven. As people are trying to get in, humbly seeking repentance, and God slams the door and says, get away from me, I didn't choose you. There's no idea of that in the Scriptures. Nobody will be in hell saying, well, I wanted to know Jesus. I I tried to know Jesus, but I wasn't elected, so God wouldn't let me. Brothers, Romans 10.13 says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So the people who go to hell, listen, they go to hell because they chose to rebel against God. They didn't want Christ. They didn't want holiness. They didn't want to repent of their sin. When God chooses some and not others, the people that God is passing over are people that would have never have come to God on their own even if they could have. So man is responsible for his own sin and man is responsible for his own judgment. Everybody in hell is there because... They said no to God. And the point of unconditional election is that that would be all of us unless God in His mercy wouldn't have opened up our eyes and shown us the beauty of Jesus Christ. But we couldn't do that for ourselves. God had to open our eyes. Brothers, listen, if, if you don't... Get even some of the depth of election. Just know this. This is so important. If you are saved tonight, it is not because you found God. It is because God found you. If you walk away tonight knowing that, that's good. You didn't find Jesus. Jesus found you. And the reason Jesus found us is because we weren't even looking for him. Because none seek for God, no, not one, Romans 3. But the Son of Man, Jesus said, came to seek and save the lost. If if this whole thing, if if all of life and spirituality is a game of hide and seek, we were the ones hiding and Jesus is the one that did all the seeking. That is a doctrine of unconditional election in a nutshell. Now let's tie all this together and we'll start to, to land the plane here. Okay. Back to verse 17 and 18. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Verse 18. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Now I'm going to come back to verse 19 and 20 and end there, but I want to read you first verse 21. Has the potter, that's, that's God, no right over the clay? That's us, of course creation, to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another vessel for dishonorable use. So if we've been kind of deep, we're going to go about two feet deeper here. This this isn't going to get any easier. So just, here we go. Let's do this. This is the Word of God. Paul says in verse 21, God created all of humanity. And, and Paul uses this word picture of a, a one lump. You know, in Genesis, God made us out of, what, dirt? So, God created all of humanity. There's one lump, but not everyone has the same destiny. Not all will be treated the same, as Cash would say, and Paul would say here. Some, Paul says in verse 20, will be a vessel for honorable use. In in the context, that's that's obviously salvation. He says others, though, will be a vessel for dishonorable use. As we'll see, that's going to be the judgment of God. Verse 22. What if God, desiring to show His wrath. I want to read that again. I want, you, I want you to let that settle. What if God desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power? See, now you, you see the link between the Pharaoh example. Remember, he he hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he could show his power when he destroyed Pharaoh? So, so that's the context. That's, now apply that to unconditional election across the board. That's, that's what Paul's doing. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? It's Judgment. That's hell. It's the wrath of God. Here is Paul's argument in in, in the whole passage. Yes, God is righteous in his election. Because the most righteous thing God can do is to draw attention to and to magnify that which is most valuable. And nothing is more valuable than the name and the glory of God. So whatever God needs to do to most exalt His name and His glory, that is good and right and just. Nothing is more important than the exaltation of the name of God. And according to Romans 9, God determined in His own freedom that he is able to best display his name and his glory by showing mercy to some and by showing wrath to others. Paul says this is why God doesn't choose to save everybody. This is why not all of Israel was Israel. This is why God chose Jacob and not Esau, Isaac not Ishmael. Now, this leads just to consider a very common verse that sometimes people consider to object to the doctrine of unconditional election. In 2 Peter 3.9, if you're thoughtful at some point in this process, you probably thought, well, what about this verse? Where the Bible says, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. How in the world does that coexist with the doctrine of unconditional election? So we might say, well, look at 2 Peter 3.9. It says God is willing that all should come to repentance. All. That's true, but does everyone come to repentance? No. But 2 Peter 3 says God wills that everyone would come to repentance. So since everyone does not come to repentance, brothers, that must mean there is something that God wants even more than for everyone to come to repentance. Brothers, do you understand if if the bottom line will and desire of God was to save every single person, God would save every single person. Because He's free! So, the question is, what is it that God desires even more than for every single person to be saved? Romans 9 teaches us tonight that there is something that God desires even more than for every single person to be saved, and that is the showing off of His power and glory to the world. Verse 22, what if God desiring, this is the desire of God here, to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. So God determined before the foundation of the world that the way He could most make His name known the way that God could most show off His power and most display His glory, the best way for God to do that was not by saving everybody. Instead, God's glory and God's power, they're most fully seen when God displays all of His attributes. Not just His love and grace and mercy, but also His holiness. And His righteousness and His justice. Brothers, God is indeed a God of love and grace and mercy. But that is not all that God is. And if all we know is a God of love, we have but a a portion of the fullness of who God is. And God desires, though, that every person would see all of His glory all of his attributes. And so on the final day, God, yes, will be a great God of love when he shows mercy to countless, but every soul in the world will see on that great and terrible day the full, unleashed, unhindered justice and wrath of God. And for that, God will be praised because God wants us to see all of him. One of my favorite movies is True Grit. It's a remake of this Western. It came out several years ago, and it shows this scene at one point of a public hanging. And so in those days, when they, when they did these hangings, the whole community would come out to watch. So it, it, the, the movie depicts this, this community, and of course they're out in the middle of this little town hall, if you will, in, in the middle, and um, they've got like four or five dudes lined up on blocks with ropes around their neck, and they're about to kick the thing out and, and hang the guys. And, and they do. They kick out the stump they're on, and the, the dudes are hanging there, murderers and all these things. And, and, the, and the movie depicts hundreds of people in the community. They all stand up and they applaud. Because there's this innate human instinct and, and, and craving for justice. We know that justice is a good and right thing. And brothers, on the final day, when God shows His justice and mercy to those not found in Christ, all of creation, as God drops people into hell, all of creation will stand up and say hallelujah to the Lamb. For His judgments are true and just. And as Revelation 19 says, He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Paul says this is why God didn't choose to save everybody because God desires that his wrath and justice be made known to the whole world and that the whole world may stand in awe of him. But there's there's one more thing here. Read verse 22 through 24. What if God desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Verse 23. And here's here's the new reason we haven't talked about. In order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy. Which He prepared beforehand. That's before the foundation of the world. For glory even us whom He called not from the Jews only but also from the Gentiles. So why did God choose some and and not others? Paul says because when those of us who are saved, when we see God taking out His justice on other people, it makes us even more thankful for the grace and mercy that He's shown to us. And it makes us give Him even more glory. So what if, Paul says in verse 22, God has vessels prepared for destruction to show us to make known the riches of His glory vessels of mercy. In other words, brothers, if God saved everyone, we wouldn't be nearly as grateful for our salvation. But when we see others face the judgment of God, transfer yourself to the day of judgment, and we're going to see God cast countless people into the lake of fire forever. And brothers, every one of us on that day will know it ought to be us. The mercy of God that he has shown to us, brothers, is going to be so much sweeter when we see it up against the backdrop of the terrible wrath and fury of God that we know should have been for us. So the ultimate goal of unconditional election is the supreme, unmatched, uncontested glory of God. Let's conclude with this. Verse 18 and 19. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? Paul, it's not fair, man. If God shows mercy to whomever he wants and if God hardens others, then how can God find anybody guilty? So, Before I read verse 20 and 21, here's here's what this is. I said this at our church last Sunday. Verse 20 and 21 is where Paul walks up to the podium and he gives us these two verses and then he drops the mic and he walks off the stage. This is kind of the closing argument here. This This is the nail in the coffin. Verse 19... Paul, that's not fair. How can anybody resist God if he's totally sovereign? Verse 20, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to his motor, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? People say, How can God do that? How can God choose some and not others and still hold people responsible? And Paul's response, brothers, is not a long theological explanation debating the uh, relationship between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Paul's response to the questioning of God is very simple Who are you? Who are you, oh man, to question God? And as he uses the word man here, Paul reminds us of our humanity. Who are you, man? Paul says, we better know our role and remember God made us out of dust. Like, God didn't even have to create us. God made us out of dirt and breathed life in us, and that we're going to take our little puny fist and shake it in the face of the Almighty and say, that's not fair. Who are you, old man? Paul reminds us that we are creation, and we are in no position to question the creator. God here just gives us a really big dose of humility and he says what he basically said to Job. Where were you when I hung the stars? Where, where were you when I created the ocean and I hung the sun? Where were you? And you're going to question me? My goodness? Brothers, there are some really... Difficult, deep things in the Bible that we're not going to completely understand in this life, and this may be one of them. But that's the point, I think. That sometimes the best thing God does for us is just to remind us that He's God and we're not. He is the potter, we are the clay. His ways are beyond our ways. He created us, and God does not need us to affirm His decisions. Because he is completely free. And that is what makes him God. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that... Lord, anything I've said tonight that is, that is not right or true, I pray that we would just forget it. I pray it would just fall to the side But, Lord, anything that has been said in accordance to your word, God, help us to massage it in our hearts, and may your Holy Spirit come and help us to process it. And ultimately, Father, may it be for your glory. Father, thank you for your mercy. Lord, we are sinful men who know we deserve the wrath of God, but we thank God for the Lord Jesus Christ who came and drank every single bit of the wrath of God so that not one drop of it has to hit the pant leg of even one of God's children. Lord, thank you that you chose to show mercy to us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.